Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 187, The Balkan League. Now, first as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. So, big thank you to new patrons Ryan Suidam, I hope I got your name right, and Veselin Christoph, as well as to Goran Berg for increasing his pledge. So, big thanks to all of you. And with that, let's jump right into it. Last time, we saw inter-ethnic violence in the Russe lead to dozens of deaths and injuries. All the former factions of the MRO, with the exception of Sandanskis, decided to bury the hatchet, reform the organization, and return to guerrilla activities inside the Ottoman Empire. This new version will just be referred to as a VMRO for clarity. Now, partly as a result of all this, Ferdinand was feeling more pressure than ever to find some resolution to the Macedonian issue. But the reality was that Bulgaria still did not have any firm ally among the great powers and nothing but rivals in the Balkans. But overall, the Ottomans found themselves with fewer and fewer friends, even as the Albanians, traditionally more loyal subjects and often warriors for the Ottomans, mounted a failed revolt. Again, this showed how the reforms of the young Turks didn't go far enough to satisfy Balkan Christians, but went far too far for the young, for kind of Balkan Muslims, leaving no one happy with the outcome, which is something we've seen in the Ottoman Empire before. As a result, the young Turks at this point are gradually moving a, kind of back towards a more hardline stance, destroying the hopes of those like Sandanskis, who believed that the young Turks would kind of create this more multi-ethnic Ottoman Empire that would create the opening for a more peaceful resolution to the region's problems. So we finished off in early September of 1911 with the election of Bulgaria's 15th National Assembly and the ending of the Milinov government. Now, Ivan Geshov heads a new governing alliance between the People's Party and the Progressive Liberal Party. Together, they just amended the constitution to enable Tsar Ferdinand to make secret treaties on his own. It's clear that the decades-long Balkan status quo imposed by the Treaty of Berlin is now over, and it's time for everyone in the region to quickly take what they can. So let's start with some diplomatic context. By this year, 1911, Russia had realized that Bulgaria was not going to enter into an alliance with the Ottomans. It's ironic that for years prior, the possibility of, of Bulgaria either going to war or allying with the Ottomans both seemed very plausible. But with that alliance no longer an option, Russia now saw the chance to convince Serbia and Bulgaria to repair their relationship and form a kind of anti-Austro-Hungarian alliance to prevent the Austro-Hungarians from expanding any further into the Balkans. In yet another ironic twist, what Russia absolutely did not want out of that Bulgarian-Serbian alliance was for the two to go to war with the Ottomans, because St. Petersburg felt that such a war might result in Russia having to fight Austria-Hungary, and basically Russia didn't want that, didn't feel ready for a war, so they wanted defensive alliances to prevent it. However, for now, the Russians felt secure promoting this Balkan alliance between because well, Bulgaria and Serbia were still at odds over Macedonia, so Russia felt that they wouldn't be able to act together against the Ottomans because it just assumed they wouldn't be able to come to an understanding there. 
But that was beginning to change. Starting with the Italian declaration of war on the Ottoman Empire in September 1911. But before we get into that, let's understand what brought Italy to this decision. The short answer is opportunism. France had recently seized Morocco, and the Austro-Hungarians had recently taken Bosnia and Herzegovina, which, as we know, infuriated Italy because the Austro-Hungarians had promised to compensate Rome, and now they were like, nah, no thanks, we, we just won't do it. So, for decades, the great powers had kind of enforced a status quo in the Balkans through the Treaty of Berlin. But as I just mentioned, that was opening up because the great powers were suddenly starting to grab territory here and there. Now, like Germany, Italy was still relatively recently unified in a relatively new great power, and so it was desperate to play catch-up in the whole building a colonial empire game. What Italy specifically wanted was the North African territory of Libya. Italy had asked to get control of the territory after the 1877-78 war when France had taken Tunisia and Great Britain had taken Cyprus. But while Italy had managed to get several great powers to agree in principle, they hadn't managed to find a way to actually take the territory. But by 1911, Italians were feeling even more left out as great powers were freely taking and building their colonial empires. So, at this point, Italian newspapers were loudly demanding that their country simply take Libya, arguing that doing so would be pretty simple and easy. There was also interest in Ottoman Albania as another potential colonial project, but, well, we'll get to that in, in the future. Now, ironically, despite Italy being an ally of Germany, or Germany and Austria-Hungary on paper, as we know, those relationships were being undermined by the support given to Rome by Russia, Britain, and France for Italy's North African ambitions. Basically, these Entente powers, the, the, you know, the other alliance, they saw a nice opportunity to create a wedge between Italy and its erstwhile allies, and they were taking full advantage. So, they also knew that Germany and Austria-Hungary were interested in the Ottomans as an ally. So, besides making Italy like them more, this is also a nice opportunity to, you know, cause a war between Italy and the Ottomans, which would make it just, you know, all the attempts to kind of solidify that German-Austro-Hungarian-Italian alliance even harder. So, Germany and Austria-Hungary warned Italy against the move because, again, they thought the Ottomans were potential allies and they did not, under any circumstances, want to start a broader conflict in the Balkans. But the Italians by this point were hardly in a mood to heed their warnings after the whole betrayal by Austria-Hungary, and so, yeah, they just ignored it, and soon an ultimatum was sent to the Ottomans demanding they give Libya to Italy. The Ottomans responded by proposing an arrangement that was pretty normal for them at this point. They would let Italy take control over Libya, but technically it would remain part of the Ottoman Empire. As you know, this is how Bosnia and Herzegovina functioned for decades, uh, and this was currently being done in Egypt, where the British really ran things, but still technically Ottoman. Italy, however, was not interested in this kind of half measure, and so they declared war on September 29th, 1911. Now, for decades, the Ottomans had been fighting rebellions in the various Balkan states. But while the great powers had engaged in limited interventions on occasion, this was actually the first time the Ottoman Empire had actually fought a great power since the 1878-1879 Russo-Turkish War, which was more than three decades in the past. The Young Turks, as we know, were still kind of finding their feet, getting their bearings, 
and they felt pretty weak. Though to be fair, Italy was hardly an established military power and had only been unified for 40 years. So it was a war between perhaps the weakest militarily of the great powers and, you know, the declining Ottoman Empire under kind of shaky new governance. So the question is, how's everyone going to perform? Well, to start, both sides were, quite frankly, very unprepared. The Ottomans had sent their Libyan soldiers to Yemen to put down a rebellion there, so Libya was only defended by military police. And to make matters worse, the British would not allow the Ottomans to move large number of troops to Libya through Egypt, again despite it technically being an Ottoman province. And the Ottoman navy just could not stand up to the Italian one because the Italian navy was about seven times its size, had better ships, and was better trained. What all this meant was that Libya was going to have to be defended mostly by those who were already there or some troops who could kind of sneak through Egypt. On the other hand, the Italians right away struggled with amphibious operations, which, you know, makes sense. Uh, There's few things harder for an army to do than an amphibious attack. But they still made pretty good progress and very soon marked the first ever use of air power in war, as they used some planes and some uh, blimps basically to do bombings and things. The Italians, though, were soon bloodied in the Libyan interior as poor logistics and hostility from the locals led to a situation where the Italians were basically under siege in a bunch of locations. But despite these challenges, Italy basically declared war by November, and the conflict soon transitioned from, you know, an all-out war to something more like brutal guerrilla warfare. I'll also quickly note that the Italians also used this as an opportunity to seize uh, some islands in the Aegean uh, that were Ottoman, and, you know, that's going to play into history later. But while the war was grinding on in Libya, back in the Balkans, the newly reformed VMRO, now basically led by Todor Alexandrov, began its activities. In October, it sent a memo to the consulates of the great powers in Thessaloniki stating its opposition to the kind of Ottomanization process of the population of the European vilayets. So yeah, it's saying that it's not interested in this process of giving more rights and kind of further integrating non-Turks and non-Muslims into the Ottoman Empire in Europe that that's not going to be an olive branch anymore, because as we know, a lot of the former factions of the MRO, you know, played with that, accepted it, you know, went along in that kind of uh, legitimization process, but they were now just making a clear statement that it is done. So after a long period of quiet, right, a long period of the MRO not existing and not engaging in attacks and things, As you can imagine, the newly formed VMRO isn't content to just make a bunch of statements. They want to get right back to action. So, once again, the VMRO wanted to get back to the old playbook of conducting violent attacks in Macedonia with the goal of provoking a strong Ottoman reaction, which would then raise European awareness for and sympathy of their cause. Kind of a, it's like that meme. It's like, this hasn't worked up until now. It's like, well, this hasn't worked for anyone else, but it just might work for us. So that's kind of the situation. This this hasn't really worked out in the past, but the VMRO revolutionaries hope that the new geopolitics of 1911 will help ensure that this time they're successful. Now, beginning in, in December and continuing into 1912, the VMRO mounted a series of attacks known as the Donkey Assassinations. Not because they were killing donkeys, though, I mean, to be fair, that did happen, 
but because at least one of them involved a donkey being loaded with explosives in order to mount an attack. Now these attacks occurred throughout Macedonia, beginning in Shtip, before further attacks in Kochani, Torian, Bitula, Kirchevo, Krushevo, Ohrid, Rezen, Kovedarchi, and more. The attacks resulted in dozens of deaths, including both Turks and Bulgarians. Now, harsh Ottoman reprisals then started, and in addition to the actual Ottoman government, a lot of enraged local Muslim populations took out their frustration against local Bulgarians, blaming them, obviously, and all this led to yet more deaths and injuries on both sides. But beyond the violence, a lot of locals, Christians and Muslims alike, really blamed the VMRO for all this, which, fair, uh, and decided to really cut ties with the organization. So even a lot of you know Bulgarians and Christians in Macedonia were at this point fed up with these kind of uh, you know, violent tactics where the goal is to provoke a response by the Ottomans. And so that's where 1911 comes to an end. The donkey assassinations have just begun, and it's already clear that violence is returning to Macedonia at a serious scale after that lull caused by the Young Turk Revolution. The Italians are fighting the Ottomans in Libya, and in the various Balkan capitals, leaders see the war as an opportunity to strike while the Ottomans are weak. But they're not quite ready yet, so setting all that in motion will take time. One minor note for the year, 1911 was also the year the Ford Motor Company shipped three cars to Bulgaria to drive around the country on a kind of promotional tour, and you can see uh, some photos of this on the blog post for this episode. But all this means that the, you know, relatively, still not cheap for Bulgaria, but the relatively cheap Model Ts have now arrived in Bulgaria, meaning that some wealthy Bulgarians are now starting to drive fancy new motor cars. So, it's time for 1912. Now, early 1912 saw Albanians in the Ottoman Empire again demanding more rights and autonomy, despite the failure of their recent uprising. The requests were refused, shockingly, and despite warnings that this is going to trigger another uprising, the Ottomans just would not budge. And, well, that's exactly what happened, as January saw the beginning of yet another Albanian revolt, this time supported clandestinely by Bulgaria and Montenegro. So now the Ottomans are fighting both an Albanian uprising and a war with Italy at the same time. Concerns were growing that the Ottomans might actually give in and create an autonomous Albania within the empire, which could theoretically include some parts of Macedonia, which meant that even though Bulgaria was supporting the uprising, they were also kind of worried about what it might result in, and Serbia was definitely worried about this. So what all this meant was that the pressure to take advantage of the situation by forming a Balkan alliance against the Ottomans was greater than ever. But while that was going on, Ferdinand was well, engaging in his usual diplomacy, ensuring he would avoid any binding commitments to either the Entente or the Central Powers. I know they're not called the Central Powers yet, but it's just easier to refer to Germany and Austria-Hungary as the Central Powers for the moment. You know, otherwise, you've heard me already. Just saying Germany and Austria-Hungary a million times is just a word salad. So, Ferdinand, you know, they're these two powerful blocks of allied European countries, and Ferdinand is just constantly playing the both one off another, making both concerned that uh, Bulgaria might go in one direction or the other, and, you know, incentivizing each of them to give in to more Bulgarian demands. For example... Back in April of 1911, Ferdinand finally managed to receive something he'd wanted for ages, the Order of the Golden Fleece. 
This is a you know prize given by the Austrian emperor, a kind of order, arguably the most prestigious order in all of Christendom. And so yeah, Ferdinand had wanted it for years. He then planned a visit to Vienna to thank the emperor personally and use that visit as a tool to make the Austrians nervous about whether he would kind of go through with it or whether he would back out and make them look silly. And it simultaneously made Serbia and Russia concerned that maybe Bulgaria and Ferdinand was moving too close to the central powers. So, you know, this is an example of exactly what I'm talking about, how Ferdinand, you know, he gets the Austrians to give him something and then he uses his reaction to that to make both sides very nervous about, ooh, what's he going to do? Is he moving too far in this direction, that direction? And it incentivizes everyone to potentially kind of woo him. So Ferdinand's keeping his options open while putting everyone in a position where, yeah, they need to woo Bulgaria as an ally. And actually, at this point, there's even some talk of marrying Prince Boris to one of the daughters of Tsar Nicholas of Russia. Ferdinand even managed to use all the situation to get a personal loan from Russia, which incidentally was not actually supplied by the Russian state so much as it was supplied by Tsar Nicholas himself. And Ferdinand used that loan to pay off an Austrian loan. Again, showing just how far Russia was willing to go to prevent Ferdinand from even financially being beholden to Vienna, even to the extent that the Tsar himself was willing to uh, loan money to his fellow Tsar. So, While the need to form a Balkan alliance may seem to be the end of Ferdinand's ability to play both sides because, you know, he's avoiding firm commitments and a Balkan alliance, by definition, means some firm commitments, it didn't quite work out that way. It was actually kind of a new opportunity for him to do more of this chicanery. The way Ferdinand saw it, allying with Serbia would anger the central powers because of Serbia's bad relationship with Austria-Hungary. But Italy was still technically allied with Austria-Hungary. So in theory, going to war with the Ottoman enemy of the Italians should make the Austro-Hungarians happy, even though they were interested in the Ottomans as an ally. You can see, it's messy, but there are ways where Ferdinand can kind of portray even a firm alliance with Serbia as being kind of advantageous to both sides. You know, he could at least argue, oh, but I'm I'm allying against your enemy, so why would you be upset about that? Now, from the perspective of the Entente, Russia was encouraging the formation of these Balkan alliances again because Russia saw them as a defensive tool to stop the Austro-Hungarians. The Balkan states, on the other hand, had something very different in mind. That is, an offensive war against the Ottomans. So, Ferdinand is working to ensure that Bulgaria's actions can't be seen as kind of purely positive or purely negative by any of the great powers to kind of keep his options open. But regardless of what any of those great powers think, negotiations for alliance were underway in the various Balkan capitals. So the question is, how are those negotiations shaping up? In discussions with Serbia, Bulgaria wanted an autonomous Macedonia because Sofia believed that the best chance for acquiring all of Macedonia was to keep it whole instead of dividing it, and basically relying on a repeat of the union with Eastern Rumelia. Though the Serbs, they could see what the Bulgarians were playing at, they they weren't stupid, and so they insisted that Macedonia should be divided between them, because, yeah, they knew an autonomous Macedonia would be much more pro-Bulgarian, so this made sense for them. So, The two sides were at a bit of an impasse, but frankly, Bulgaria didn't have a lot of leverage and it definitely did not have time to engage in lengthy negotiations. 
So Serbia won out, and a line was drawn across Macedonia to Ohrid. Bulgaria was to receive the territory to the south, Serbia was to receive some bit of the north, and the central strip around Skopje was going to be allocated with the help of Russian arbitration. This was because both Serbia and Bulgaria felt that Russia would be sympathetic towards them, so they were both willing to kind of kick that can down the road. I couldn't find a fantastic map of the proposed carve-up of Macedonia, but if you go to the blog post linked in the episode description, you can see one that shows essentially where these lines are. They're not labeled, but based on what I just described, you should be able to figure it out. And yeah, in any case, what is clear here is that you know, the outcome of what was supposed to happen in Macedonia wasn't super clearly laid out, right? There were still some things left in the air, left to be decided later. And, well, you could say that would open up the possibility for conflict down the line. But Serbia and Bulgaria both knew that they didn't really have time to worry about this now. There was no time to delay, so that's what they agreed on. You know, this treaty also committed Bulgaria to fighting Austria-Hungary in case it attacked Serbia. But, well, Ferdinand didn't really care that much. You know, on the one hand, he definitely did not want to sign any paper that committed him to fighting the Central Powers, because again, he wanted to keep his options open. But he felt this was very unlikely to happen while they were at war with the Ottomans. So he was fine agreeing with it, because, well, it was useful, because that clause helped Russia keep lying to itself and, you know, convince itself that this alliance was still directed against Austria-Hungary. So Ferdinand was like, sure. It doesn't really matter. It helps me get what I want. I'll sign that. Now, when it came to Bulgaria's alliance with Greece, the document they negotiated actually contained zero details about how conquered territory would be divided. Both sides basically assumed that they would get control of Thessaloniki and maybe even Constantinople. Bulgaria, because they had faith in their much superior army, and they thought, yeah, our army is going to take these prizes and, you know, at the, as they say, possession is nine-tenths of the law, so there's no need for us to negotiate over it. We'll have them anyways and we'll be in a good position. So the Greeks assume that, you know, it'll somehow work out their way, yada yada. We're now again in a situation where ambiguity is laying the groundwork for a potential conflict because both sides assume that things are going to go their way. And, well, it can't happen. So we'll just have to see. Now, Bulgaria's alliance with Montenegro was, well, left to a simple verbal agreement because they weren't even interested in the same territory, so yeah, there, there wasn't a whole lot that needed to happen there. Though Bulgaria did pledge to support the small country's military financially in case of war. Bulgaria also attempted to sign an agreement with Romania, but the Romanians refused, again, foreshadowing. Now, in essence, Bulgaria's agreements with Serbia and Greece were both you could say optimistic. But the hard reality was that all three countries were full of hardliners who would absolutely categorically refuse to accept anything less than their country's maximalist territorial ambitions. The problem was, of course, that these maximalist goals overlapped. And in particular, those of Serbia and Greece overlapped with Bulgaria, not so much with each other. So, again, foreshadowing. Now, Stetelova's biography of Ivan Geshov notes that he, as prime minister, now felt that, quote, the country's interests demanded more diplomatic flexibility, a rigid adherence to the national goal with its fixed ethnic definitions and future ethnic borders would condemn Bulgarian foreign policy to powerlessness and self-isolation. 
Concessions were therefore necessary as part of cooperation with Serbia and Greece. Geshev saw the Balkan League as the only way to get rid of the Ottoman hold on the Balkans, given that none of the great powers was prepared to stand behind Bulgaria. All the Balkan states had claims to the European provinces of the empire. Subjugated peoples were systematically being annihilated, end quote. In other words, Bulgaria was in a nearly impossible situation. Its population had maximalist desires its government had no practical way to deliver. To make matters worse, it was becoming clear that Bul the Bulgarian population of both Macedonia and Adrianople was gradually declining over time as a result of all the violence and the difficult circumstances that the people in those regions faced. So what this meant was that as time passed, the strength of Bulgaria's claims to get those regions was getting weaker and weaker. So as the spring of 1912 turned to summer, the domestic situation in Bulgaria was heating up considerably. Somehow, VMRO members learned that Bulgaria had secretly agreed to divide Macedonia in that treaty with Serbia, leading many to feel deeply betrayed. This was indeed a major shift in Bulgarian policy. Not once up to this point had Bulgaria ever entertained the thought of dividing Macedonia. But on the other hand, many in the Serbian army felt that Serbia's agreement and you know, what they had negotiated meant that Serbia was giving up far too much. So again, hardliners on both sides are deeply unhappy with the compromises that have been made. But much more worrying than even what the Serbian army wanted was the fact that the moderate Serbian prime minister who just agreed with that treaty and negotiated it died in July and was replaced by a much more hardline figure who wanted more for Serbia than what had been agreed to. So it was too late to change the treaty itself. But again, you know, we can see now that hardliners who don't want to compromise with Bulgaria are now very much in charge in Serbia. So, you know, foreshadowing. But whatever concerning developments were happening in Serbia, the summer of 1912 saw the public clamoring for war reach new heights in Bulgaria. VMRO conducted an assassination in July, which saw Ottoman reprisals kill 40 Bulgarians and injure around 250, and as a result, the Bulgarian public was more impatient for revenge of the Ottomans than ever. However, around this time, the Balkan League decided to wait until the fall to begin the war against the Ottomans. They just didn't feel like they were quite ready. And so the government in Bulgaria, as well as elsewhere, they all had to kind of try to calm the public down and just, you know, postpone everything a few more months. But in the meantime, again, the Serbian government was being managed by a prime minister who did not want to surrender so much of Macedonia to Bulgaria, and that prime minister began instructing the various Serbian embassies around the region to lay the groundwork for Serbia taking over the portion of Macedonia that they had explicitly granted to Bulgaria in the treaty. So, even before the war had started, Serbia was already preparing to violate the agreements it had just made. Now, this isn't all. The Young Turks were also facing their own challenges at this point. The combination of the war with Italy and the revolt in Albania had hurt their prestige at home. Back in April, Ottoman general elections had been held, but the Young Turks had employed a lot of violence and election manipulation to ensure their more liberal op opposition, the liberal opposition who still supported kind of more rights for the empire's ethnic minorities, won a mere six out of 275 seats, with all the remaining 269 seats going to the Young Turks. So, you know, a total blowout. 
all these events, the weakness of the Young Turk government and the brutality of the manner in which it held elections, by this point convinced a group of military officers to form a secret group aiming to restore proper constitutional government in the Ottoman Empire. In June, a member of this group requested the president of the Ottoman parliament to disband it. In response, the Ottoman minister of war resigned, leaving the Young Turks in parliament isolated, so they eventually agreed to disband parliament. A new government was formed with various kind of prestigious figures who weren't affiliated with any political party, so kind of, you know, non-political cabinet. But this secret group of officers were able to dominate this new cabinet. So, just like that, the Young Turks, despite dominating the government and dominating the parliament, basically lost control of both in a very short period of time. The new government called for new elections, but little did they know that events were about to overtake them. As the summer of 1912 came to an end, the time to begin the war with the Ottomans was fast approaching. Now, without any knowledge of that Serbia was planning to violate the treaty with Bulgaria, leaders in Sofia worked with their allies to determine the best way to kick off the war. Geshov successfully argued that it should begin with the allies issuing an ultimatum demanding, quote, the administrative autonomy of the districts, Belgian or Swiss governors general, elected district assemblies, a gendarme, freedom of education, and a local militia, end quote. In other words, a bunch of reforms that have been talked about for a long time, and some of them were kind of alluded to in the Treaty of Berlin. What this meant was that, you know, the Balkan League members could say that, hey, we're just asking for people from the great powers, or at least neutral states, to help oversee things, and, you know, this is all completely reasonable. So, yeah, we're, we're not demanding anything crazy, and therefore our war is justified. Lastly, this ultimatum also demanded the Ottomans cancel the military mobilization that was by now underway. So, yeah, the idea behind this ultimatum was to justify the war in the eyes of the great powers. The Balkan League would argue that the war had only occurred because the Ottomans refused to implement reasonable reforms. But, of course, nobody thought the Ottomans were going to agree to this. It was just an excuse to start the war under a better kind of PR situation. But in the meantime, every army in the Balkans was beginning to mobilize, and the Bulgarian National Assembly passed a tax increase designed to help pay for the war that everyone knew was imminent. Then, on the 8th of October, 1912, the Kingdom of Montenegro kicked things off by declaring war against the Ottoman Empire. Ten days later, the Ottomans formally refused the joint ultimatum, and they actually declared war on Bulgaria and Serbia. That same day, Greece declared war. Tsar Ferdinand issued a manifesto explaining the reasons for the war in grandiose terms. He spoke of a war that was, quote, just, great, and sacred, end quote, being fought on behalf of all those who loved, quote, justice and progress, end quote. And indeed, the war was being waged in the interests of, quote, humanity and Christendom, End quote, and was a, quote, struggle for the cross against the crescent, end quote. Ferdinand was proclaiming a new crusade. The Balkan War was now underway. The various Balkan states had by this point spent decades investing heavily in their armies, waiting for just this moment. The opportunity to push the Ottomans out of Europe for the first time since 1345 was at hand. But, with the members of the Balkan League each having their very own unique ideas about what should happen as a result of this war, the outcome is far from certain. 
And that concludes the regular episodes of Season 8 of the Bulgarian History Podcast. Now, as usual, the next two episodes will be recaps of the season, covering the period from the death of Stefan Stambolov to the beginning of the Balkan Wars. And after that, we'll begin Season 9, where we'll dive straight into the conflict. You won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information about everything here at bghistorypodcast.com, and I will see you all very soon.